This podcast was recorded on June 25th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and is subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we are broadcasting to you on June 25th, the morning of. Um, and we have a special guest today. I'll introduce him in a second, uh, give some background. But it is Mark Zandi, the chief economist for Moody's Analytics. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. We have a few prescient things to talk about in the market real quick. So, Sam, why don't you give us the, the brief, quick market roundup? Feels like not a lot happened uh, in the last week or so, but maybe you can summarize it for us, please. Yeah. So for the roundup on the month to date basis across the point data points that we look at, the S&P 500 up uh, 30 basis points on the month to date basis through last night. Year to date, we're looking at down about 5% still. Uh, the U.S. bond aggregate up 40 basis points month to date, year to date up about 6%. Gold spot future or gold futures uh, on the front month are up nearly two uh, percent on the month and sixteen percent on the year. LME copper nine and a half percent for the month, down still about five percent on a year-to-date basis. WTI crude oil up seven for the month and down about thirty-eight percent year-to-date still. Moving on to sovereign yields for the 10-year treasury, uh, we're looking at about 70 basis points, uh, give or take, and that's pretty much unchanged since the end of last month. 10-year boon, very much the same thing, uh, down about 44 basis points, uh, or not down, sorry, at negative 44 basis points uh, through last night. 10-year JGBs, pretty much flat as, uh, as expected nowadays. With regards to to cash spreads across different fixed income sectors, starting with the U.S. investment grade corporate credit, uh, we're in about 22 basis points on the month, putting us at right at about 150 basis points on the spread. For high yield, in about 40 basis points at 610 on the spread, 610 basis points, and EM in about 50 basis points, putting us at 380 basis points. I'm going to keep this economic roundup quick because I'm excited uh, to, to have Mark help us read between the lines on some of these data prints. But just to, to put out some of the, the most recent prints that we've seen since our last last podcast, existing home sales are at 3.9 million on the annualized uh, rate. That's down about 10% month over month um, from its high. I believe that was in February of this recent high as, uh, as of February this year. So it's had three months of uh, slowdown there. It's near a historical financial crisis low as well. So we'll, we'll perhaps we'll talk about that and see uh, what the expectations are going forward. Uh, new home sales, a little bit different picture, up 17% on a month over month basis, uh, 676,000 on an annualized rate. We got some preliminary market PMI data. Um, you know, we'll wait for the finals there, but across the board, manufacturing services and composite all saw an improvement over last month's print. 
Uh, today we got durable goods up about, well, let's just say up 15.8% versus uh, the 10.5% increase that was expected. So uh, uh, definitely a strong surprise print there. And that was including transports, but even excluding transports, you saw a beat of expectations at up 4% uh, for the most recent print. Also got uh, the GDP estimates. I believe this is the third estimate for the first quarter print, and that was effective. That was unchanged uh, over the previous estimate there, so nothing new. Initial jobless claims continued to, to tick down a little bit. This particular uh, print was for 1.48 million, a little bit higher than expected, at, which was uh, 1.3 million on the expectations, but still down over the, the prior week's print. Continuing claims, we're still seeing, well, we're a little bit under uh, 20 million now at 19 and a half million uh, versus the 20 million expectations. Uh, so that is a little bit lower also than the, the previous week. So perhaps, you know, a sign of uh, uh, some benefits of, of uh, rehiring uh, going on here. But again, we'll dig in with that with Mark. And one last thing uh, I wanted to note is that we do have an upcoming data print, I believe tomorrow on personal income, which was, uh, I believe it was a, it might have been a historical high in personal income as well last month, but that was on the combined um, efforts behind perhaps stimulus and perhaps some of these uh, um, enhanced unemployment claims that may or may not put people, uh, certain you know, certain individuals that have been out of work at a higher uh, replacement uh, income versus where they were when they were working. But uh, lots to talk about this week, Jeff. All right. Yeah, no, that's a good roundup. And again, uh, just looking at, I think the, the key thing that jumps out to me still is that still that continuing claims coupled with the pandemic unemployment assistance, you know, still have north of 30 million people um, that are getting some form of benefits at this stage. And what you find in that, too, if you if you take that as the basis for the unemployment rate, although, you know, we all hope that some of it's transitory, it still puts you at about a 19.6 to 19.8 percent rate, depending on how you calculate it. So uh, definitely a very high unemployment there. We've seen that stimulus, as you mentioned, really translate uh, or the stimulus or just the government transfer payments really helping people get through this. And so I think we're all eyes are on Congress now to see what happens over the next six weeks or five and a half weeks uh, when those benefits expire, if indeed this hiring situation doesn't change. So I think it's a great intro to bring Mark on here. Um, as I mentioned before, Mark is a chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Um, he's a, a published author out there. He's put out many pieces out there, um, whether it's uh, looking at the subprime market implosion and how that could lead to another crisis. And then uh, also another great book on uh, ending the Great Recession and beginning a new American century. He's got a, a, a bachelor's degree as well as a PhD in economics at the University of Pennsylvania. So definitely uh, someone who has the pedigree to discuss all these details today. So uh, again, thank, thanks for coming on the show today, Mark, and, and welcome to The Sherman Show. Yeah, thanks to be on. Just for sake of disclosure, I'm also on the board of directors of MGIC, which is a publicly traded mortgage insurer, and I'm the lead director of Reinvestment Fund, which is uh, uh, the largest uh, CDFI in the country. We make investments in underserved communities across the country. So just uh, folks know, should know that as well. No, that's awesome. I mean, uh, also uh, using this for uh, to help uh, societal impact. So that, that's awesome to hear, too. Uh, I think you also uh, co-founded Economy.com, right, which is how you led to your role in Moody's. Maybe you can give us a little bit of background from uh, from academia and, and how you ended up at your role today. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah. I mean, I uh, was trained by uh, Larry, Larry Klein. Larry Klein won a Nobel Prize in econometrics. So uh, taking 
economic data, modeling it, and uh, producing forecast scenarios, doing policy analysis, that kind of thing. And he started a company called Wharton Econometrics, and I worked there as a student. You know, I needed money and I needed their data for my thesis. And then I started uh, economy, what was called Regional Financial Associates back in the early 1990s. It took advantage of the uh, uh, breakdown in interstate banking. And then I, uh, I, my brother, a good friend who started the company, sold it to Moody's. Geez, now almost 16 years ago. So we were our, we were we were a startup, you know, it, literally in my friend's condo. Uh, we got into we built into a pretty good sized small business and then sold it off to Moody's. And I've been part of a large multinational ever since. All right, great. So what do you do in kind of your day to day role as the, as a chief economist? Give, give people some insight and, and how you spend a typical day. Uh, what's it? It's actually a melange of things. I, I have a, we have a, uh, I have a couple hundred economists that, uh, that, uh, I manage across the globe. Uh, obviously we do lots of different things, but I, I'd say our bread and butter is really providing, um, uh, uh, forecasts for the global economy, uh, to large, uh, and now increasingly smaller financial institutions. A lot of it's around the stress testing processes. So like, for example, today the Fed released stress test results. And so we helped all the big banks with their stress testing work. And then more recently, interestingly, well, only for an economist, maybe this is interesting. Uh, there's been a big accounting change called CECL, uh, which is a change in the way banks do loan loss provisioning. And they have to be forward looking when doing that. So that, that means they need a forecast. So we're helping banks with that uh, here in the US. And it's called another acronym IFRS9 overseas. So we're doing a lot of this work overseas. Uh, but that that is that's actually been very therapeutic for us because uh, it provides the resources necessary to build, uh, really spend a lot of energy on building good models and doing all the things you need to do to have good models. Uh, it's around validation and, and documentation and um, uh, transparency. And um, so, uh, good, you know, it's, it's really a tough time for a lot of people, uh, but for an economist, oddly enough, it's, a, it's a, obviously a fascinating time. Yeah. And um, did you have any opinion about uh, the release of the new Volcker rule at this stage? Uh, you know, I haven't I haven't looked at that. I, will, I was always skeptical of the Volcker rule. I really didn't think, you know, obviously that was the rule that was imposed uh, as part. I think it was part of Dodd-Frank, the banking regulate, regu regulatory form in 2010. Yeah, they tend to get they tend to get used interchangeably Dodd-Frank or Volcker rule. Yeah, but, uh, I think. They are two separate programs, but they're roughly around the same time, too. Yeah, it wasn't part of Dodd-Frank, uh, was it? It was a different. Yeah, uh, yeah. it was separate. Yeah. But. Yeah, it was separate. Yeah, you know, I think it was it was a solution looking for a problem. You know, this, I don't really think the problem is was the was 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 in the banking system, per se. You know, it was outside the banking system. So I, I never really thought that was uh, particularly useful. So. Glad to see that we're we're getting reforms there, uh, but at this point, I, I'm not sure it really makes a big difference in terms of uh, how the banks manage or uh, operate. Although I, I did see uh, investors, uh, at least last I looked, investors seemed to like uh, like uh, the change. The headline, you know, assuming that the banks will support more of uh, some of these assets, but again, I, I think it's just a slight tweak more than some form yeah. of overhaul, at least from the cursory uh, work I've done on it. So, uh, but okay, so let's jump into uh, you guys put out some reports. Uh, Lately, or you yourself uh, talking about um, you know the recession that's that's been impending. Uh, I, I think the NBER came back and said it was at the end of uh, February where the recession began. 
Um, and so um, what is your take? Just on to be precise on that, there's a lot of confusion around that. I mean, February was actually the peak of the last expansion. So the first okay. recession month would be March, would be March. Okay, fair March. enough. Yeah. yeah, no, that, that's good. I mean, it's a precision business. So thanks for the correction. So yes, the peak of the expansion occurred in February. So March is the first month of recession. Um, I think that you were on record out there saying that June starts the beginning of the recovery and that this could be the, one of the shortest recessions on record. Yeah, no, that's right. So uh, I, I think the recession was March, April. And I think there's actually going to be some debate around May, but let's just say May. So three okay. months. That would be the shortest in history. The NBER has been dating recessions back to the mid 1800s. The typical recession on average is nine months. So this would be far and away the shortest. It's going to be the most severe as well, though. So if you look at peak to trough decline in GDP on a monthly basis, it's going to come in somewhere 12, 13, 14 percent, something like that. And for context, in the financial crisis, the peak to trough decline was about 4 percent. So this is three times as severe uh, at least based on that measure. So shortest, but uh, arguably the most severe recession in history. Well, is it? do you find it any coincidence that it, uh, it, it was antedated by one of the longest expansions ever, albeit a bit more muted than we've seen in the last few expansions? In fact, one of the you know, lowest growth rates, especially for how, what the tenor was there. Do you, do you think those things are related or do you think this is really just a function of this uh, health pandemic and our response mechanism to it? Yeah, I think the, 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 the fact that it was so short and so severe goes to the, the, the pandemic. Uh, you know, the, the fact that we had to shut down big chunks of the economy, which is unprecedented. I mean, the only thing that comes close is when a natural disaster you know, blows through the Florida peninsula uh, but that's the Florida Peninsula. That's a you know few communities, and, and in that case, you, you you can see to the other side. Here, you know, the pandemic shut businesses down, and at the time when we shut them down, we really had no sense of what was going to happen, or when we still really don't to a large degree. So, there, so there's no precedent for for this. So I think the the character of this recession, both in terms of its length and severity, goes to the idiosyncratic nature of the of the pandemic itself. I do think the, the long expansion you know, was leading to some of the preconditions for a recession. So, you know, I, I had thought recession probabilities were pretty high for 2020 anyway, particularly if President Trump continued to pursue, you know, his crazy trade war uh, that was doing a lot of damage to the economy. But, uh, but uh, you know, so even without a pandemic, you know, recession risks were pretty high. I, I think some of the dynamics prevalent prior recessions were, were in place. Right. Hey, Mark, so let's, actually, let's, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, so, Mark, uh, I have a question on that actually as a follow up, you know, you know, you're saying that some of the preconditions existed, given that this was one of the or was the longest expansion on record. I guess my question would be, does this voluntary shutdown because of the of the economy, because of the pandemic, does that cleanse us of our sins or, you know, namely the buildup in you know some of the debt, both public and private that we saw? Or do we still need to go through that? No, this is going to exacerbate the credit problems longer run, right? I mean, think about it. Think about the obvious, the sovereign increase in sovereign debt. I mean, the Treasury is borrowing hand over fist to finance you know, the $2.4 trillion in fiscal rescue already provided. There's another big package coming, at least another trillion dollars. Our debt to GDP ratio was, uh, you know, 80 percent. Uh, before this, it's going to be it's probably over 100 percent now headed to 120. I just put 120 out there because that's the all time record peak that we achieved briefly after World War II. And then we also have a lot of debt accumulating in the non-financial corporate sector, which was happening. That was one of the fault lines in the system before 
uh, the pandemic, uh, but it's th that is going to be exacerbated by the pandemic because we have a lot of borrowing going on uh, by a lot of companies that, you know, a lot of it goes to the Fed's credit facilities and its ability to help support the financial system, but it's going to a lot of companies that are, you know, I'd say their business model is in question and, and quite fragile. And uh, so we, I think we will have credit problems uh, dead ahead. And particularly on the other side of the pandemic, we're going to have a lot of hard work uh, trying to work through that. So I don't know that that's enough to push us back into some kind of recession, but certainly enough of a headwind to make sure that the economy is not going to kick into high gear for any length of time going forward. Right. So it's a recovery. It's likely muted. It's kind of your baseline here. And, you know, so far we've seen, in addition to, you call it fiscal rescue, I think it's much better than stimulus because there's not a lot of velocity on this. You're just plugging yeah. the gaps. Right. Uh, I've been calling it transfer payments. But, you know, the thing is, is that when you think about this recovery that we're on here, um, you know, how do you envision that path? You know, everybody's trying to forecast using letters, whether they're, they're V's, U's, W's. Um, what do you what do you think about that economy and how dependent are we on really just the financial markets being uh, just held up by the Fed, their amount of liquidity programs and then their incessant buying of uh, these debt instruments? Well, uh, uh, it, you know, it's a kind of a complicated path forward and you know, uh, very uncertain, obviously, because the pandemic is still raging. I mean, we, you know, uh, we have no idea how long this thing's going to go on for, how bad it's going to be. This reintensification of the virus is pretty disturbing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's raging out of control in the emerging world. Uh, so, uh, you know, given that uncertainty, it's hard to know. But if I had to pick, you know, a ba I, and I do have to pick, you know, a baseline, here's the most likely scenario, I'd say, you know, we're getting a bounce now. Uh, we shut down businesses. Now we've reopened them. Uh, we applied a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus, rescue, and so we're going to get uh, you know some growth here uh, through the summer months. Uh, assuming we get another fiscal package, we can talk about what would happen if we don't, but let's just assume that we do. Then I think the economy kind of holds its own through the end of the year until the pandemic is over, until we get a vaccine therapy that we're comfortable with that's effective, that's widely distributed and adopted. Uh, and you know basically go nowhere until then. And we can talk about why if you're interested. And then on the other side, we'll get another bounce because a lot of pent-up demand. We've got to rebuild inventories that are being depleted. Uh, so we'll get some juice. Uh, and then, you know, as we move uh, uh, into the decade, I think those that's when those headwinds were, I was just mentioning regard, uh, regarding debt, but there's other headwinds we can talk about as well that will mean a, a bit of a slog. So this is a process. This is not V-shaped. This is, we're not off and running here. I think people need to recognize that this is going to take some time and it's not going to be until mid-decade until we all feel pretty comfortable about things. And and that will require that nothing else goes wrong. Right. And so you mentioned the fiscal packages. What, what do you think that looks like? I mean, we've been focused at Double Line really on the unemployment benefits just because the replacement rates are so enormous when you start looking at the median, obviously the function of how much you you earned you know, pre, uh, pre layoff. Um, on, on how well that replacement rate is. But looking at the industries, I saw a paper out by a couple of the University of Chicago professors that were uh, illustrating that of the top 10 industries in the U.S. Uh, that employ people, seven of those 10, the median benefit is greater than their median wage was before. And so there has been some resilience there. And so 
Um, you know, what do you think about that package? I, I think that has to, con- unless we get some resurgence in hiring the next five weeks or so, we've got to have some replacement there. So how, how do you envision that fiscal package? Again, none of us are in Congress, but what do you think is necessary to keep the economy from rolling over at this point? Well, three things. One, it's got to be at least a trillion dollars. Uh, and that, that price tag, I think, is higher today than it was a week ago because the, the infections are intensifying and it's, it's, you can already feel it disrupting businesses. I mean, you just read what Texas governor did. He's, you know, he's the, the and there's going to be a lot of non-elective surgeries or no, no yeah. non-elective procedures. And that's, that's, that's tough for Texas to do that. Right. That's, for them to, exactly and him right. to even recommend yesterday that people stay at home if you don't have to. I mean, that, that's about as close, I think, as you're going to get to a Texas lockdown. Right. That's a, that's a big deal. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and self-quarantining. I mean, there was a good Fed paper where I was just came from an ADP summit where there was a bunch of Fed researchers looking at ADP data and what they found. ADP is the payroll processor. Yes. Yes. They, they found that uh, about half the job loss peak to trough was, you know, back in March and April was due to business shutdowns. The other half was uh, basically self-quarantining. You know, people just nervous. They're not, you know, right. not going out. Like me, I've been, you know, basically stuck in my home here in Chester County, PA, just just uh, west of Philadelphia for three, four months. My wife was happy yesterday because she got to go to the post office to renew her passport under the 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 probably false hope that we're going away. Incur- first time I've ever time. heard someone, yeah, first time I've ever heard someone say they were happy to go to the post office. I'm not kidding you. I am not kidding yeah. you. That passport renewal is going to take a long time, too, because my wife sent hers in, uh, I believe, a month or two before the lockdown, and it's still in uh, purgatory somewhere and limbo somewhere. Yeah, they said they're going to start processing. Yeah, they said they're going to start processing now, and then they think they can get 200,000 done a week to catch up. So they say that it'll still be about two to three months before they start processing the new one. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, well, hopefully, you know, this is what, what are we, June? we got six months. You know, yeah. Well, look, you can't go anywhere. It's not like the airlines are going to fly you to another country. Exactly. I mean, you, have to, you, better, you better live close to a border to do so. so. Yeah, right. Hey, yeah. sorry, I, I forgot the question. You're talking about passports. Where were we? We're talking about the fiscal package. Yeah, the fiscal package, The fiscal package, correct. Oh, so three things. One, a trillion bucks. Uh, but, in a, you know, that again, that feels like that's going to be going up here. Uh, given the damage this reintensification is going to cause. Uh, two, it's got to happen fast before Congress goes away on its August recess because, you know, that money you talked about, the UI, that runs out that that uh, plus up, that $600 a week plus up goes away end of July, I believe. So, you know, there's going to be a big fiscal cliff void there. And then third, uh, it, my sense is about half of that's got to go to state and local government. Uh, they got a huge budget hole. Uh, by our estimate, 500 billion over the next two fiscal years. If they don't get help, then it's going to be, you know, uh, just carnage uh, in terms of job loss and that uh, teachers, uh, fire, police, hospital workers, emergency, you know, all the job, all the people you need at any time, but particularly in a pandemic. And it's every community in the country. It's not just D's, D states. It's our, you know, our states are starting to have real problems here as well. And so I expect half there. And then the other half is going to go to income support. I don't think the UI plus up is going to be 600 bucks. My guess is they'll get it, they'll they'll cut it in half, bring it down to 300, so that some of those disincentive effects that you were alluding to become less uh, significant. Uh, and that, that that makes sense. I mean, the the shutdowns are over. We are going to see you know about half the jobs we lost come back, so there's going to be job openings. So you want people to get back to work. So I, I expect about a 300 a week plus up probably through the end of the year only because we got an election in November and they'll probably want to keep that 
in place through the uh, end of the year. Uh, but you know, say 500 billion in state and local uh, support, 500 billion in income support, and again, the you know, with each passing day and another new record high on daily infections, particularly if death rates start to move up, I think that price tag is going to rise pretty quickly here. Yeah, and so when you think about that too, like um, when you're looking at the overall state of the economy. To what do you kind of see as the highlights? What are the pluses that we're seeing right now? We obviously know that there's some weakness, whether that's energy-related, retail-related. These are things that we kind of had as overhangs pre-COVID, but then COVID brought in the whole uh, travel and leisure sector as well. Um, what are you kind of seeing as the strong parts of the economy today? And then what are some of these other weaknesses maybe you see that aren't, aren't widely as covered? Well, I think housing, that's been a uh, surprise to me. It's, you know, held up remarkably well through the pandemic. Uh, obviously, the record low mortgage rates helps a lot. And, and again, housing's gotten a lot of government support. Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA, they're all government controlled. They account for 70, 75% of all origination volume, and they continue to lend. And uh, also, the these agencies put in forbearance and moratorium on foreclosure and eviction, and that's been, you know, quite helpful. And that'll that that'll remain in place through the end of the year, uh, going into next. And housing was uh, fundamentally uh, significantly undersupplied coming into the pandemic, particularly in the low mid price point parts of the market. Uh, excuse me, severe affordable housing shortage, and that puts a uh, no pun intended, a floor under uh, prices, and and it should also help with rents to a lesser degree. So uh, I think housing has been uh, surprising. Purchase apps, that's uh, applications for purchasing, uh, for getting a mortgage to purchase a home, or I think they're above what they were, you know, pre-COVID. So the market feels pretty good. Although, again, if things re if the virus re-intensifies and people lock down, you know, that's going to be a problem for housing. But nonetheless, just abstracting from that for a second, I think. Yeah, the other you know obvious surprise is what is the stock market. Uh, I mean that has come uh, at least I haven't looked today, but yesterday put that aside for a second. I mean market is um, within spitting distance of its pre pre previous record high. I think the Nasdaq has gotten to new record highs. That's correct. Uh, and a lot of that's driven by you know these uh, uh, very large companies. And I think one of the longer term uh results of the of the pandemic is is concentrating business activity into the hands of fewer and fewer companies and this is this is going to be across every industry you can see in technology you can see in retail you know walmart target you know they're just feasting on all the failures that happening on smaller brick and mortar companies and they've got their own kind of uh, successful online businesses but you know that, that kind of dynamic is playing out everywhere in every uh, in every sector and that uh, that lifts the stock market uh, because the stock market is now a market for winners, uh, not not a market for the uh, as a barometer of the entire economy. But nonetheless, those are winners, uh, and you know there's that's where uh, that, that those are the success stories, and you know where things are going to uh, go well. In terms yes, of, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask too. As you think about that too, and you're, you're contrasting the the market versus some of the economic data. Uh, how do you think about the dependence of the Fed here? Because the Fed catches a lot of flack uh, for any policy that they introduce. Uh, but, you know, as some people have um, uh, said that they're breaking the law by providing these liquidity facilities, you know, to these SPVs that are buying corporate bonds and the like. How, how do you think about the Fed's role in the overall economy at this stage? I mean, it's one thing to get interest rates to a certain level, but 
the idea that you know once they announce these corporate bond buying schemes that ultimately that has put you know some uh, it's it's put a lot of technical pressure on the market it's brought spreads down and buying rates across there do do you think the fed you know how do you how do you think about the fed's role in all of this well i think they yeah i think they've done what they had to do i mean you know this is this is cataclysmic i mean just think about this for a second think about all the people who've lost their jobs right i mean we had 22 million at, back in April, lost their jobs. Then think about all the people who kept their jobs that lost their hours. And then think about all the people who are now getting their pay cut. I mean, one of the hallmarks of the current uh, pandemic is we are seeing nominal wage cuts, actual outright pay cuts. That never happens. That's one of the hallmarks of our economy. Didn't happen in the Great Recession, not to any significant degree. This is this is you know this is data in, uh, you know coming from uh, the ADP summit as well. The massive wage cuts. I, I would uh, conservatively estimate that one third of the nation's labor force suffered a direct blow from COVID. You know, law, job, lost job, lost hours, lost wages. This is this is a cataclysmic. And then you you, you you know you think about that for a second, and then you know also put it into the context of back where we were March April and the uncertainty about the virus. You know, what is this thing that we're getting nailed with from a healthcare perspective? We had no idea how bad this thing was going to be. It's bad enough, but we didn't really we didn't know. So then put yourself in the position of the Fed and, and what you're going to do. And then if you're at the Fed and you're looking at funding markets and they are literally freezing up. I mean, they're they you know were days back. Can't remember exactly when, but probably mid March. You know when this the, the thing that it was all dawned on everybody that this thing is going to be Armageddon. You know, funding markets froze up. People, uh, we would have mass bankruptcy by now. You know, so yeah. I think the Fed had absolutely, positively no choice. And by the way, you know, the Fed has a very clear rule set. Look, it's real simple. We have a mandate to bring the economy to full employment and inflation to target. Well. The unemployment rate is, as we just discussed, you know, miles away from full employment, years away from full employment, and inflation is decelerating. Core inflation, the last I looked, was closer to one percent, not two percent, and falling. So, you know, uh, they're doing exactly what they should be doing, and they are doing everything they can. I, I mean, as point blank as as anyone could be, Chair Powell is telling Congress and administration, "Hey, guys, look, you got to do something here." You right. got to come up with And that's his last testimony. He was very adamant about that, yeah. right? He was saying, "Like, look, we've done what we can." That he's he's, he's he's essentially punning and putting the onus on Congress. That look, you guys need to do these programs. And there's been a lot of debate on, you know, uh, again, with how how hard this has hit small businesses. That you know, too much of the focus has been on these corporate bonds, but the small business market doesn't really address it too. I think that's something that um, you know the, the Fed has talked about these Main Street lending programs, even though none of them have been uh, really got off the ground yet. Um, but uh, it definitely, uh, I did hear from that that I mean, he pounded the table on this needs to be a yeah. fiscal handoff at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean the mid the, the Main Street facility is really for you know mid-sized companies. I mean, it's not going to help smaller companies, and of course that's the Paycheck Protection Program. And uh, you know you have to give credit there too to fiscal policy, Congress and administration. You know they got a lot of money out pretty quickly. And another statistic uh, from uh, the ADP summit: seventy percent of small business, and when they define small business as being fewer than five hundred employees, took a PPP loan. Seventy percent. So that's not too bad. I mean, that's pretty shabby. Now. It's not too shabby. I mean, I, I do think it could have been better targeted. Uh, you know, if you look at the first tranche, it didn't go to New York. It didn't go to Washington State where the hotspots were, went to the middle of the country where there was no COVID. 
and it probably didn't help out micro small businesses. When I, when I mean, when I say that, I mean less than 50 employees, less than 10. They didn't get the money because they don't have banking relationships. And of course, PPP works with the banking system and the SBA. But, you know, uh, despite that, they got it together pretty quickly. And I think it's been very helpful. Now, if I were king for the day, I'd probably do something a little bit different. Uh, you know, and, and they are debating things in, in Congress. And maybe we could take a little different route uh, if uh, we get another uh, uh, round of fiscal uh, stimulus, fiscal support. But, uh, you know, you have to give them credit and small businesses did get help. And that's why we haven't seen the credit problems, uh, the failures and the bankruptcies to the degree that you might expect at this point in time. Yeah. And when does that roll off uh, again? So um, it, it was supposed to be for eight weeks or so. Is, is that real? Is that what the program was targeted? Does it have an end date to it? Yeah, they, they just passed a piece of legislation, another piece of legislation um, uh, providing more time. I think the PPP extends through the end of the year. And I think I can't remember how many. It's not eight weeks. It's much longer than that. So you have a lot more time. I can't remember the exact number. I don't want to give you uh, a number that's wrong, but uh, you do now, as a business owner, you do have more time to uh, utilize that money for payroll and operating expense before it, turn, it remains a loan as opposed to a grant. Yeah, okay. I think, uh, Sherman, where that eight weeks is sticking out in your head was they initially said that the yeah. payroll needed to be in effect for eight weeks before it got changed to, to uh, from a loan to a grant. Oh, that's that's the eligibility for the loan forgiveness, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, just I'm just thinking about that too, and like the sustainability of you know plugging these gaps. And, and I just keep coming back to that same thing: is that you know uh, unless we're going to get people hiring back again and actually put people back to work, because the PPP loans aren't aren't in the unemployment data, right? Well, they affect employment, right? Because I mean, they 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 hold. You know, you only you can only turn that loan into a grant if you hold on to those workers. I mean, you you don't uh, let them go or you rehire them. So some of the hiring that's going on right now is related to com companies who've got PPP money and are now uh, implementing, using that money to get bring people back. So it's it has been somewhat helpful in, in, uh, in the, the hiring that we saw in May and that we're almost certainly going to see in the month of June when we get that data. So it is having an impact. Yeah, yeah. and then think, and thinking about that too, we talked about those top industries and replacement rates and depending on people's wages. Um, you know, what we've seen is the disproportionate hit to the lower educational strata, right, yeah. um, here too. And and obviously, you know, the leisure industry, those are, um, you know, lower end jobs on the earning spectrum. Uh, do you think that, you know, how, how are you thinking about this migration perhaps up, you know, kind of that earning spectrum, both on educational strata as well as kind of the earning strata? Um, and, you know, when you look through the unemployment data, do you think that, do you think that some of that worse is behind us or do you think that, you know, we continue to see some more dislocations as people say, look, I don't need as much staff going forward. So as you as you think about it and we're talking about, you know, the economy uh, and things operating not at full capacity, we're talking about office jobs, for instance, where there needs to be physical distancing, uh, where employers are talking about bringing back, you know, 30 to 60 percent of their workforce in the first couple of stages. Um, do you think this translates into a, a bigger uh, unemployment problem as we go forward? As there are just the, there's not as much need for as many as many employees, perhaps in a pre-COVID world that we had at let's say at the end of December of 19. Well, I think we got two problems. One big problem, and that is, it's more certain, and that is uh, of the 22 million people who lost jobs, I'll probably have to get get that job those jobs back at least uh, until the pandemic is over, and even after that, 
I think many of those jobs are gone. Fed even has their unemployment rate roughly at 10% if you take the SEP, yeah. right? It's, it's at 10% exactly. at the end of the year. So they, there's not a really rosy scenario there yet, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and you know, you got a lot of companies that are going to fail, and then you got a lot of these jobs. The business models are going to change, right? I mean, I don't think business travel is going back to where it was. I just don't think it's going to happen. So that that's a, has big implications for airlines and transportation and accommodation and entertainment and recreation. I think businesses are going to be working from home. That has big implications for, you know, uh, urban cores and jobs in different parts of the country. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Global supply chains are going to be very different. And so there's going to be a lot of jobs that aren't coming back. They'll, you know, we'll eventually get those jobs back, but there'll be different jobs in different places. And that's going to be an adjustment process. But here's the thing that really makes me a little nervous is that you know you could start seeing job losses for those higher income you know higher more highly educated skilled workers who have so far kind of navigated through this thing pretty uh, pretty gracefully and that's because the economy is going to remain weak for some time and uh, demand is going to weaken and business is going to say hey you know I don't think I need to have you know five thousand workers. Maybe I need only four thousand globally. That you know that kind of thing. And I can kind of feel it in the data. I mean, if you look at these initial claims for unemployment insurance, I think we ought to be worried about this. I mean, last week we got one point what five million, and if you throw in the the pandemic uh, unemployment insurance claims, I think what are we close to two? You know, something like yeah, that. Two like, million. I think that was seven hundred thousand and some in, in that as well. Is that right? Okay. North, North of two million. Yeah. I mean, in, in a good economy, remember back, you know, before the pandemic, we were at 200K and, you know, we thought 250K was going to be Armageddon because that was going to be higher rising unemployment. And it's not, they're not falling. They're, they're staying right where they are. They haven't really moved all that much. Those claims, you know, for the last three, four weeks. So, and now the, the virus is re-intensifying and disrupting businesses again. So I, I, you know, it's making me nervous. Uh, I, I think we're, underestimating, you know, what's going on more broadly in the economy, the damage that's been done under uh, to the rest of the economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's something I worry, particularly in the context of markets, because markets definitely aren't, you know, counting on that. They priced in something totally different than that. Yeah, well, let's let's bring that up real quick on the market. So you're talking about some of the risks that are prevalent here. And we, we've seen some shakiness in risk markets this week, but I wouldn't say anything, uh, you know, that's disconcerting that there's a huge drop imminent. Um, but you, you talk about the problems we have here. You talk about the dependency on another fiscal package. Uh, we haven't even talked about the fact that we have an election in, uh, you know, in about four and a half months, right, or four months in a week. And the market just seems to be shugging off all these types of risks, especially like, let's say, the stock market. Now, you know, the stock market is, is becoming dominant. You talked about the NASDAQ, the tech sector has been somewhat impervious uh, to to this COVID crisis. And, and in fact, probably been helped a little bit by it, right. uh, especially in, in in the technology names that are, you know, definitely like the Zooms and the you know, Microsoft, the things that we're all using for technology. However, you know, when you, <coughs> excuse me, when you think about the uncertainty that the, the election uh, imposes, and we've seen this uh, last week, we had someone on who's a political analyst that aggregates a lot of polls. And you see that it looks like there's uh, perhaps a regime change coming, um, and it looks like perhaps even a blue wave. And the market, you know, just seems to really be shrugging us off. W what do you think is going on here to try and reconcile these things today? 
Is it just well, in Fed we trust? That, that's why I keep coming back yeah. to this, this mantra. You know, the Fed yeah. always has our back, right? Maybe we should put that on the money is in, in Fed we trust, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's the key thing. I mean, they took away the tail risk, right? I mean, yep. they're gonna, they told us point blank that they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that the thing hangs together. And they, they also said they're going to keep rates at zero until the economy is at full employment. And that's several years down the road. So that's a green light to buy uh, any kind of asset, risk asset. So that's the other, uh, you know, obviously helping housing, uh, probably propping up CRE, commercial real estate to some degree, but clearly the equity market. The other, the other factor is uh, what I mentioned earlier, the concentration of a market share into the hands of a few companies that are publicly traded. But, you know, I think we can't get around the fact that markets are discounting a V or something close to a V. Uh, there, And it's not unusual. I mean, you know, I've been following markets for a long time and, you know, they tend to take the last two data points and draw a line. And that's the world at, <laughs> at infinite into the future. We so call it naive are, extrapolate. The phrase we use is naive extrapolation. Okay. I like that. Okay. okay I'll, I'll steal that. Feel naive free to extrap- use it. Yeah. Yeah. Both up and down, by the way. So the market is always perennially overvalued or undervalued. Very, very, uh, uh, very uh, unusual for it to be at what I would call equilibrium. And I'd say as an economist, I don't generally talk about markets, except when I think they're uh, significantly over undervalued and that that poses a risk to the macro economy when they adjust. And I would say this market is overvalued and it's going to it's going to be it's going to correct uh, just, you know, this script is the script on this market has not been written uh, completely. Now, do I think it's going to go back below the what was it, the March 23 low, uh, 23rd low? No, because, again, the Fed has investors back, but the script is still being written here. Yeah, the, the joke is, is that after the S&P goes in about 5% or so, the administration will announce that they have a vaccine to, to prop it back up. Yeah, so, there you go. So let, let's talk about, just before we wrap up here, uh, we're kind of at one of these seminal points in, in the calendar where we're at uh, right at the end of the first half of the year. So what do you think are some of the risks that people aren't talking about in the second half of the year? And you know, what do you find out there as like other concerns, um, things that aren't being talked about? Um, and that can be, you know, just uh, the the recovery as well. So what are you thinking about in the second half of the year? What should we bring to people's radar right now that they're missing? Well, the obvious is the pandemic. I mean, that's front and center. You know, watching what's going on here is just really disturbing. So and, I mean, we're not we've given up. I mean, there is no healthcare response. We're on our own. And that is just incredibly disconcerting. So, you know, that's going to be front and center. Second is this election. I mean, you know, uh, this is going to be ugly, really ugly. Uh, and you can you paint whatever dark scenario you want. I can paint a darker one for you. Sure. So uh, just buckle in. I mean, it's going to be a mess. And then the real nightmare scenario is we don't know who won the election on election night. Now, just think about right. that for a second. I mean, and that's a real possibility. You saw what happened at these you know, these primaries, they can't figure out, it's, you know, look, look what happened in Iowa, you know, Democratic caucus. This is going to be a mess, you know, particularly right. the, the pirate, if the pandemic is raging and people are scared of voting and, you know, there's only one voting booth for 600,000 Louisville citizens, you know, that's going to be a problem. Uh, that's going to be a real problem. And then, of course, you got our president, right? And everything about that uh, speaks for itself. So, you know, we got, you know, I, I, I'd say buckle in. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, maybe maybe volatility is one of your most uh, confident uh, ideas going forward, oh, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Sam, is there anything else that uh, we've missed today? Uh, we've covered a lot, but uh, perhaps you know, Mark, if we can just close it off with just your thoughts on um, 
what the other side of this uh, recession or and or pandemic looks like. I mean, you're talking about the about this as a cataclysmic event. I mean, what kind of behaviors are going to be changing, if any, you know, particularly from the consumer side of things, uh, if and when we finally pass this? Oh, this is a seminal event. This is going to be in the collective psyche forever, uh, you know, at least in tr terms of people who live through it. Uh, and I feel really badly, deeply for millennials when you think about, you know, the problems they've been through. They've been through two one 100 year events in, in their formidable years of their you know life. I mean, you know, from getting into the workforce back in the financial crisis to now trying to start a family now, I really feel bad. And they got they got problems, right? I mean, problems that we created the boom, not you guys, you're, you know, you're, you're young guys, I'm sure. But, you know, I'm a boomer and we messed up big time badly. And, you know, we're leaving things in a pretty tough spot for that millennial generation. So I feel very, pretty bad. Hey, but I, I'm not going to end on a dark note. Look, uh, you have to admire uh, the American economy. I mean, we're, we're being hit by some pretty significant gale force winds and pretty bad leadership. I mean, about as bad as you can imagine. And we're going to navigate through. And just as long as people can make money uh, and uh, realize the value of their skills and talents, I mean, I think we're still holding on to that principle. And we, if, as long as we continue to do that, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to solve a lot of the problems and we are going to be just fine. But, it, you know, it's going to take a while, but we're going to be just fine uh, because uh, we have a system that works. It's been through many challenges and uh, we'll, we'll get through this challenge as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I'll, I'll pile on that, too, and say never underestimate the human in innovation, the ingenuity of, of the American populace and the yeah. entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurial efforts that, you know, this uh, this country, uh, you know, provides to people and people won't stop creating. You're seeing that already in innovation of, you know, people, um, you know, creating new cleaning facilities and like. And so it'll look different, no doubt. And perhaps it looks different, too, on a consumption base. Maybe, you know, there's not as much debt and, you know, people focus on saving and the like. So we'll have to see how that all shakes out. But I'm with you there. Uh, you know, don't ever short the the American ingenuity. I'm with that. So, yeah. uh, so Mark, no, this has been very helpful, I think, to our listeners, too, to get your perspective. You know, you've got a lot of experience. You're well versed in this space. So thanks again for spending the time. But before you leave, uh, Sam has a favorite part of the show that you'd like to introduce you. to. Oh, so. yeah. He told me about this. Right. I know. That's all he talks about. Yeah. All he talks about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, Sam, yeah, it's the one thing. It's the one thing on the podcast that brings a smile to my face. So, Mark, that favorite part of that of the podcast is called Sherman Says. So what I'll do is I'll provide a series of prompts alternating between you and uh, Jeff Sherman, starting uh, to which you'll provide a top of mind response. And I'm going to kick it off with the first prompt to Jeff Sherman of bankruptcy filings. Accelerating. For Mark, yours is global fiscal policy response to COVID-19. Uh, slam dunk good. Sherman, home foreclosures. Um, coming. Yeah, I was going to say mitigated. For <laughs> now. Yeah, it, it's like transitory, right? I helped him out. Now he's got to help me out. Come on. Okay. All right. So I'm passing it back to you, Mark, with globalization. Impaired. Yeah. Expansion. 
Green shoots. Election integrity. Gone. Houston. Overwhelmed. Yeah. I read today. I read today that their uh, ICU beds are at full capacity as of today. Is so, that right? That's yeah, there was a headline. It was a headline on Bloomberg this morning uh, that someone sent, but uh, it's uh, very, very scary there. And by the way, without testing, you know, without f- federal testing anymore, too, uh, you can't expect people to want to go get tests and have to pay out of pocket as well. So yeah. uh, just it's just kind of a sad thing. I- I'm with you there, Mark. That we need some 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 leaders somewhere to step up. So. All right. On that note, um, Mark, you've got the next one with work visa freeze. Bad idea. Sherman, skills mismatch in labor market. Ongoing. This isn't something new. And the final one to mark, mobility of the American workforce. Yeah, it's slow, slowed, and uh, I fear going to be much slower on the other side of this pandemic. I mean, 2019 was the slowest rate of mobility in, uh, in the data back to World War II. Wow. Oh. Well, I think that's a little more than one word, but definitely sorry. Appropriate. Yeah, no, yeah. that's awesome. No, that's no, good. It's good to bring that in. So, <laughs> so Mark, we appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. I know you're a busy man. So thanks for taking the time for our listeners. Where can they follow your guys's work? Uh, you can go to Economic View. We have a website that covers and tracks what's going on globally real time. So I think people would enjoy that. Okay. Thank you. So thanks for Economic asking. View. And yeah, yeah, and so that's again, this is Mark Zandi. Uh, he's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. And I found the conversation very stimulating. So thanks again, Mark. Uh, for everybody out there, too, catching this podcast, you can also get this on iTunes. You can get on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, um, and wherever. Uh, Stitcher, I think, is the other one now, um, as, as always, on the Double Line website as well. So stay tuned for next week. Uh, we've got another uh, special guest, another external guest I think you guys are going to like. And so stay tuned for that. Thanks again, Mark. We really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.